Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And as you do, I want to ask you a question to consider, and that is this. What is the gospel? Or better yet, what is evangelism? How, how ought the gospel to be communicated? And this morning, we're going to begin our first week looking at Jesus' encounter with the man who is famously known as the rich young ruler. Luke just knows him as the ruler or the rich ruler. And Jesus is dealing with a central question. How can I have eternal life? What do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus' answer, stratagem, the way this develops, I think may challenge some of our understandings. We need to find room in our understanding of the gospel and evangelism to account for Luke 18. I know Luke 18 is not the totality of the Bible's teaching on evangelism and the gospel, but it is part of it. So I want to read it, pray, we'll dive in and look at it, but that's, that's the focus. You'll notice that the text that we're looking at this morning is capped by that question of eternal life. Verse 18, what must I do to have eternal life? Verse 30, and in the age to come, eternal life. So it forms a unit. It's going to take us at least two weeks to get through this. So let's read verses 18 to 23. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time. In the age to come, eternal life. Lord God, we pray that as we study this passage, you would grant insight, clarity, that the Lord's words, which are words of life and light, would illumine our hearts and our minds. That by hearing and understanding and receiving by faith, we might be changed. But help us to avoid the fate of this rich ruler. And hear Christ's call to salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage couldn't be plainer what it's about. The question comes, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And throughout the passage, various synonyms are used. Look down in verse 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, which is supposed to be seen or understood to be synonymous with having eternal life. The crowd then says in verse 26, who can be saved Again, it ends with discussion on eternal life. The reason I point this out 
and this will become clear as we move through this, there are some who don't see this as about evangelism, but about discipleship. And, and so they wouldn't see this as a call to salvation, but a call to discipleship. I want you to see in the text, this is about having eternal life. This is about being saved. This is about entering into the kingdom of God, which are seen as, in some senses, synonymous terms. In fact, this is word for word, the same question asked Jesus back uh, in chapter 10. A lawyer stood up, put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's the perennial question. It's also the question asked by the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? If we're honest, it's the only real question in life worth asking and seeking and finding an answer. So we're going to look at this this morning in four points. I honestly don't know if we're going to get through all of these. It's a communion Sunday, and I was a little ambitious here. So we will just end as far as we get, and we'll pick this up next week, and that's going to be okay. But we're going to look at this in four points. The rich ruler's question about eternal life, Jesus' initial reply, the ruler's confident reply to that, and then Jesus' challenge, and the ruler's sorrow. That's, to, that's, that's what's laid out for us there. At best, we'll get through verse 23, and likely not that far, uh, but I am an eternal optimist. Okay, so that said, let's take a look at the rich ruler's question about eternal life. Now, this is an account that shows up in all three of the synoptic gospels. Synoptic, because they cover similar material, like synonyms, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Although, we're looking at Luke's renderings. When you put all the information together, he's the rich, young ruler. But I'm going to let Luke tell us what to focus on in his telling of it. And the focus here is that he is a rich ruler. A ruler, verse 18, asked him. And then we're told back down in verse 23 that he was extremely rich. So these are the two things Luke focuses on. He's a ruler, which either references him as a political ruler, governor of some sort, or probably more likely a ruler of a synagogue, a religious ruler. We're not sure. Either way, this is somebody who is um, prominent in the community. He, he is a leader, a leading figure. We saw last week how the disciples didn't have time for babies. But you can imagine, and we see this today, if only we could get this leader, this governor, this person to become a Christian, how that might influence others. And so here is somebody of importance, known in the community, and he's a ruler of some sort. And, and we know how this ends. We know he goes away sad. We know he does not receive eternal life. But before we judge him too harshly, I want you to realize just how much he gets right. He comes to the right source, does he not? He comes to Jesus. Whereas the Pharisees had decided as a group to, to attack him and trap him and ensnare him, he comes to Jesus. And unlike the Pharisee, even in Jesus' parable, who trusted in himself that he was righteous, he's aware he falls short. He needs something. He, he's aware he doesn't currently have eternal life. So he's aware of his, the right need. He comes to the right source. And he certainly comes respectfully. Look at his address. Good teacher. This is actually one step improved from the lawyer who tested Jesus in Luke 10, who just said, teacher. That's a title of respect. Rabbi. It's been on the lips of many in Luke's gospel. Nothing about this address in and of itself suggests anything other than a genuine, sincere question. 
a genuine, sincere seeker. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. And some, because they know how the story ends, harp on that word do and say, ah, he's a legalist. He needs to do something. He needs to accomplish something to have eternal life. Maybe, but I don't think it's fair to conclude that simply from his question. Because the Philippian jailer who fell at Paul and Silas' feet said in Acts chapter 16, what must I do to be saved? They didn't jump all over. You don't do anything, did they? Now, part of the dilemma we got to figure out here is why this man gets such a different answer from Jesus than the Philippian jailer does from Paul and Silas. I mean, you got to get that. Two men asking nearly identical questions get very different answers. And that's part of the reason why this is problematic, because many people, their go-to text for evangelism is the Philippian jailer. And, and so there's, there's this uncomfortable struggle with what, why does Jesus do what he does here? And then hopefully by the time we're done this morning and next week, we'll have some understanding of that. I'm going to read a quote from John MacArthur summing up just this, this ruler. There's no need of pre-evangelism in this case. The typical obstacles that hinder people from coming to the kingdom of God seem to have already been eliminated. He was ready, eager, and he understood his need. Further, he had come to the divine source for an answer by seeking out the Son of God. According to contemporary evangelistic methodology, Jesus should have found the appropriate language and acceptable terms to move his hot prospect to salvation. But instead of finding terms acceptable to him, Jesus introduced terms to him that he found utterly unacceptable. And the amazing part of this story is that as good a prospect as he appeared to be, in reality, he was superficial, illegitimate, self-centered, false. Who left Jesus rejecting the way of eternal life, and he needed to know that. So he comes, he's got the right question, comes to the right source. Nothing in his address that I can see is a giveaway that he's insincere, that'll, that'll become clear. The master will reveal the state of his heart, but I don't think we can just jump on his question and say, oh, he's a legalist, he wants to do something. If you do that with him, you need to do the same thing with the Philippian jailer. Okay? You need to do the same thing with the Philippian jailer. I don't, I don't think that's the difference. So let's look at Jesus' reply. Let's look at Jesus' reply. Jesus' reply comes in twofold. First, he challenges him. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Then he takes him to the commandments. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So what's going on here? Jesus challenges him with why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now again, this is interesting because up until this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been willing to use the word good in relative and not absolute terms. Most notably in, in Luke chapter um, 6, the good man from the good treasure in his heart brings forth good things. Now certainly Jesus is not saying the perfectly sinless, good like God man. No, he's using it in a relative term. You who are evil know how to give good gifts, Jesus says elsewhere. And yet here, Jesus takes this word good, seizes upon it, and, and pushes back and challenges the man. Why do you call me good? No one's good except 
God. Why does he do this? What's going on here? Part of our answer comes from the context that Luke has put this in. You've got to remember that verse 14 of chapter 18 really is what we're seeing illustrated in these encounters. And that is this. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. And we saw that babies, dependent, helpless, children, the most humble position possible, they're welcomed by Jesus. This man is going to be humbled by Jesus. It's part of what we're seeing. And Jesus is the master, and Jesus sized him up, and Jesus knew what he needed to say to him. Jesus knew what this man needed to hear. That's part of the, the problem with, with developing a program of evangelism with a one-size-fits-all methodology. The tools are helpful. If you've got four steps, five truths, whatever, those are helpful to have as tools, but it's a mistake to think we share the gospel with each and every person the same way. Uh, as a new believer... I was eager in evangelism, and I made a study of all of the apostolic um, gospel proclamations in the book of Acts. What I was trying to find is some common denominator. What, what methodology did Peter and Paul and Philip use? There is none. There absolutely is none. Um, what we find is men speak to men, in the, given what is in the knee of the moment, what is necessary, and, and so we don't get a cookie-cutter evangelistic approach. There's times when the answer you give somebody is what the Philippian jailer was told. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household will be saved. There absolutely are times that is the appropriate message. But unless our Lord here is making a mistake, there's also a time to respond pushing back, challenging, bringing up the law. That's what he does here. And, and the difficulty for us is to have wisdom to know when and how. When and how. Why do you call me good? Jesus is doing, I think, at least two things here. One, Jesus will not be flattered. Jesus will not be flattered. Jesus must have suspected or known the state of this man's heart. And even though he comes with this, this title, which seems respectful, at the end of the day, does he treat Jesus as the teacher? Does he take the doctor's prescription? No, he does not. You won't ultimately be his teacher, Willie. This man at the end of the day knows better. And so Jesus challenged him. He won't be flattered. He's already told us in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Don't call me good teacher if you're not going to listen to what I say. Don't, don't give me a title that doesn't in any way reflect our relationship is what Jesus is saying. But second, and more importantly, he's challenging the ruler's understanding of who God and he are. He's challenging the ruler's understanding of who he, God and he are. What we're going to see is this man's understanding of God and his holiness is way, way, way too low. And his estimation of who Jesus is is way too low. And so what Jesus is doing by pushing back, saying, why do you call me good? Only God is good, is he's, he's redirecting him to God. Ultimate goodness can only come from God. Only God is good. And it also gives the man a chance to say, well, yes, only God is good, and you are God, right? There's a chance for this man to clarify who he thinks Jesus is, but the man lets that go, doesn't do that. But Jesus is challenging him to, who do you think God is? Where do you think goodness comes from? How relatively good do you think you are to God? And who do you think Jesus is? Good teacher. And that's Jesus' first pushback. And again, striking, considering how good of a prospect this man looks like. And again, I want you to pause and imagine some city official 
congressman, senator, governor, mayor comes to you, what, what do I have to do to be saved? How many of you are going to push back and then take them to the law? Yeah, Jesus does. Jesus does. Jesus won't be flattered, and he challenges the ruler's understanding of who God and he are. That's, that's the first assault pushback. Probably would have been jarring for the crowd. This is done publicly, remember. There's a large crowd. People are going to hear this exchange. This isn't private. But then Jesus says something even more shocking. Jesus directs him to the law, to the commandments. That's what he does. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now I'm going to read a quote from Walter Chantry's little book, Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic. It's very helpful. It's a short little read. It's available in the bookstore it's basically a brief commentary, both on the modern evangelistic scene, and when I mean modern, he wrote this in the 70s. And, um, well, the problems are perennial. Problems are perennial. You'll read this, and it's just as applicable today. And he uses the rich young ruler as his case study. It's what he's looking at. Now, I want to read an interesting quote here um, from him. What would be your reflex in such a circumstance? Here's an outstanding fellow begging to know how we can get to heaven. This is the evangelist's dream. Wouldn't you open your Bible and ask him the essential questions? Do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that Christ died for your sins? Will you accept Jesus as your personal savior? Pray this prayer after me. He would answer in the affirmative to each question with very little instruction. Just show him the usual verses. Aren't you a little disappointed to see Jesus handle this teacher, this tender soul, so roughly? How could our Lord use such obviously poor tactics with a sinner? He began with a rebuke and went on to talk about the Ten Commandments of all things. Demanded immense sacrifice as a condition of having eternal life. And sadly allowed the fish to get away. If that resonates at all with you, then this is the study we need to have. Jesus does not always do what is expected. And again, hear me, I'm not saying this is, if this becomes your new model for evangelism, you're making the same mistake. The flipping jailer's there, this is here, but we need to understand what's going on. Why would Jesus go to the law like this? Why would he respond like this? And why didn't Paul and Silas respond to the flipping jailer like this? Normal evangelical practice is to swiftly run to the cross of Christ. But the cross means nothing apart from the law. On the cross, Jesus was satisfying the just demands of the law against sinners. Without knowledge of the condemnation of God's holy law, the cross will draw sympathy, but not saving faith from sinners. So what's going on? Here's, I think, the essential point. Verse 14 frames this. And I think if you study through the Bible and you look through why different people get different responses, why Jesus treats the woman at the well differently than he treats this man, here's the principle. And I encourage you to tuck this away as you speak the truth, as you evangelize your neighbor. And it's this. Jesus preaches law to the proud and grace to the humble. Jesus preaches law to the proud and grace to the to the humble. There's a reason why the first three quarters of your Bible exists. And one of the reasons is to lay out the law of God for us. 
It's not simply for Old Testament saints. All scriptures inspired are God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so we've seen in verse 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus is doing, using the law to do the humbling. That's what's going on. And so when Jesus encounters someone who is humble, he speaks grace to him. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. And when he encounters pride, self-righteousness, he doesn't give grace. He gives law. I think you'll see that pattern throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, throughout Acts. And I think that helps explain why the Philippian jailer, who a man who is suicidal, broken at the end of himself, the opposite of pride, fear, trembling, sorrow, throws himself at Paul and Silas's feet, prostrate, presenting himself, I believe, as a slave or a servant. He calls him kurioi, which our English translations unhelpfully translate serves. When you fall on someone's feet in front of them, prostrate, and you call them kurioi, you're calling them lords, masters. They're responsible for saving his life. Likely he and his family would be killed. That's why most people suspect he wanted to kill himself, was to give his family a shot, because he was a guard who had lost his, his charge. And because the men had not left, his life was ready. He falls at their feet. This is not a proud man. This is a broken man. This is a contrite man. This is a fearful man. And they just give him grace. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I think that explains the difference. And it's important for us to know the difference of who we're interacting with. And notice, it's not enough simply to have some awareness of sin. This man recognizes he's not perfect. He knows he needs something. He knows he falls short. So it's not simply enough to say, yes, I know I'm not perfect. Yes, I know I'm not as holy as God. This man could have done that. This man would have done that. But our Lord knew this man did not have the slightest grasp of his sinfulness and of God's holiness and the law's demands. And that's why it's a loving thing and a kind thing and a good thing and a right thing for the Lord not to preach grace, but to point him to the law. See, the law convicts of sin and silences the proud. The law convicts of sin and silences the proud. You know, it's interesting, if you read through the book of Romans, in, in verse 16 through 18, Paul lays out his thesis, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And he's going to get back to that. And from, three, from 118 all the way to the middle of chapter 3, G, Paul doesn't speak of the gospel. He speaks of the law, sin, judgment, and wrath. He tells you, this is, I'm writing you a letter about the gospel. I love the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but we've got to talk about God's wrath. And it's striking. Notice the next time you read Romans. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. Verse 118, the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all wickedness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then it goes on until he sums it up. He gets to the end of his sense on sin and judgment in Romans 3.19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world, to be held accountable to God. God's law is designed to shut mouths and make people realize how accountable they are to God. That's what Jesus does here. He points them 
to the law. The law convicts of sin and silences the proud. A little later in chapter 7, Paul in Romans is dealing with the the question, if, if the gospel saves and the law doesn't save, then why the law? And he says this, again, making the same point. Romans 7, 7 through 9. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What he's saying is one of the uses of the law is to show us the sinfulness of sin, to help us to realize how far we fall short. Yeah, everybody I know, the most proud person you know will admit they're not perfect. They've made a mistake here or there. That's not good enough. If you don't, if, if, if sin is not being seen, they're not convicted, they'll make the mistake that the gospel is simply a remodel, not a renovation. That's what we're going to see this guy has. He knows he falls short, but he still thinks he's pretty good. I've done a good job at keeping the commandments. I've done a good job at honoring my mother and father. It's not enough, so I need a little extra push to get over the edge. What do I have to do? God help. He's not beating his breast like the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's not enough simply to recognize you've made a mistake. Do you recognize what, the, what justly awaits you and I, the wrath of God that will never be quenched, that will go on forever and ever and ever? Or are you tempted to think that's a bit, a bit of an overreaction on God's part? Or do you see the justice of it, the goodness of it? God's law will help with that. The law convicts of sin, silences the proud, and the law reveals our desperate need of grace. It's meant to lead us the gospel. It's like a sign saying, don't don't go through this door. (laughs) You want the other door. And Paul in Galatians 3.24 says this, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So that's why Jesus takes him on. Jesus knows this man doesn't grasp his sinfulness. Jesus knows this man doesn't understand God's holiness. Jesus knows that the law has not yet done its work in this man's heart. And there are people you're going to meet that that's where you need to take them. Not everyone you meet. But some, pray for wisdom, pray for discernment, so that you might know how to answer each man and season your words with salt. Again, this isn't the only way to present the gospel. There are times when absolutely this is what's needed, something like this. And he cites the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth commandment out of the Ten Commandments, which is interesting. Um, Moses came down with two tablets, and it's possible that he had two complete copies of the law. Some people think that, one for Israel, one sort of for God's copy. But the other possibility is that the, the first four commandments were on the first tablet, the first table of the law, and that the, the last six were on the second. And, and whether or not that's the case, it's been taken to be called that way, the first table, second table. The first four commandments relate to God, having no other God, keeping his Sabbath, not blaspheming his name. And the last six commandments, and here's your blank, they focus on one's neighbor. They focus on one's neighbor. That's interesting. This is the exact same tactic Jesus took when he was asked this exact same question earlier in Luke's gospel. Go back to Luke chapter 10. When I tell you that I think this pattern holds in Scripture, here's another example. Last Christmas, um, so we've covered eight chapters in a little over a year. I think that's a good pace. Um, we, we, we studied this passage, and in 1025, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus does not say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He takes him to the law. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your, and your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. And I think the law began to start to chip away this man's heart because he was now a little insecure, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And we focus now on that second half of the Ten Commandments. Love God with our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. That's the first four. Match, line up nicely with that. Your neighbors yourself is a good summary of the last six. And so, asked the same question, the Lord takes him to the same place and ends up discussing the same topic, loving your neighbors yourself or the last six commandments. And I think this is part of the Lord's kindness because it's these last six commandments that I think are the most easily measured. I mean, how would you rate how much you've loved the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind today? I mean, I know I haven't done it well enough, but it'd be hard for me to quantify it, right? One of the kindnesses I think our Lord is doing in citing these latter commandments is they ought to be, for this rich young ruler, if, if they're going to do their job, if he's going to become convicted, these are the ones that should be more readily apparent. Have you or have you not lied? Have you or have you not honored your mother and father? Have you or have you not committed adultery? These are much more quantifiable, much, much easier to see in some respects. I think that's part of what's going on. And, and sadly, this, this man doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. Our Lord takes him to the commandments and he points them to the law and the loving of neighbor. And the, and the point is, this is supposed to bring about repentance. This is supposed to, to break. When, when you go to God's law, when Jesus says, do this and you'll live, here is the right response. I can't do that. Help! That's what the tax collector does. He beats his breast and he says, oh Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Notice the contrast. What does the Pharisee list? He lists the commandments. The Pharisee, standing by himself, 1811, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You see, when you counter God's law and the law does its work, you don't say, I can do that. You say, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. You, you respond as Peter does in Luke's gospel. Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. That's how you respond. That's what the law is supposed to do. Now, sadly, we know that the Pharisees of Jesus' day had dumbed down the law to something they could keep. So we'll now move to the ruler's confident reply. It's tragic. Our Lord has pointed him to the clear scripture. This man knows it's meant to undo him. It's meant to unman him. It's meant to break him. It's meant to convict him. And by the way, this isn't just Jesus' evangelistic strategy. This is also the Holy Spirit's evangelistic strategy, by the way. When in John 16, 16, 8, Jesus says this. When he comes, the Spirit, what will he do? He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. What's the Holy Spirit's initial work in the human heart? Conviction of sin. That's where he starts. That's where he starts. It's not just Jesus' methodology. But the ruler has looked at God's law, probably memorized it, and then confident replies, 
All these things I've kept from my youth. And I tragically think he sincerely believes this. He's willing to say it publicly. If this man were notorious for his sin, I don't think he'd be willing to say this publicly. The crowds would say, oh, yeah, right. This man says it publicly, and Jesus doesn't even challenge him on these points. So I'm guessing this is a very moral man. No one had seen him or known him to lie. No one had seen him or known him to be disrespectful to his parents. He was moral, and sure, that took effort and work on his part. He, to some degree, kept God's law, to some degree. But he had far too low a view of God's holiness and his law. The only way you can look at God's law and walk away thinking you've kept it is if you dumb it down. You turn it into something you can keep. Well, Jesus doesn't challenge him on this, although we know this is patently false. There's no way. There's absolutely no way he kept the law, these commandments. But which of the second table of the law commandments did Jesus leave out? It's the tenth, right? What's the tenth commandment? Thou shalt not covet. Interesting. Okay. And we'll just begin this last section here. But Jesus says to him, one thing you still lack. One thing you still lack. This man thinks he's kept the law. Now remember, Luke 17, 10, Jesus telling us how we're to understand our obedience. You likewise, when you've done everything that you were commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Even when, by God's grace, you obey, it doesn't add merit. It doesn't make you deserve more or less. You're an unworthy slave. You've only done your duty. That's not how this man views himself. And so Jesus, I think, says in effect, okay, okay, well, let's, let's just let that one go for a moment. It's not that Jesus agrees with him, but Jesus, because he is masterful in his evangelism, gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Which I think gets at, to some degree, the 10th commandment. Because what we're going to see is this man loves and covets his money. He's going to hold on to it tightly. And it's what's going to keep him from coming to Christ for salvation. Now, some people struggle with this because it sure looks like Jesus is putting some sort of cost, requirement for salvation other than faith. Jesus doesn't say, believe in me and come follow me. He tells him to sell what he has and come follow him. And I think it's crucial to understand this is because of the nature of faith and repentance. Remember, we've said this before. Faith is turning to something. You turn to Christ in faith. You turn to God in faith. But if you're turning to something, what are you also doing? You're turning from something. And so here's the picture that John Piper gives of this passage I think is helpful. This man's hands are full of money. And by, by ex- extension, his heart and while his hands, his heart are filled with money, he can't reach out and take Christ or take a hold of Christ by faith. So what Jesus, in effect, says to do is let go of this thing, this God you worship, and take hold of me. And when you let go, the money's going to fall on the poor. I think that's the picture. Because Jesus says one thing you lack. You don't lack the thing you have, right? 
You don't lack the thing you have. You need to get rid of the thing you have to get the thing you lack. What he lacks is following Christ. But, but people wrestling with this say, well, this is just a test. It's just a test. Jesus wasn't serious. He just wanted to see what he'd say. I don't think so. Turn back to chapter 14. Jesus said something awfully similar. No, sorry, 13. Jesus said something awfully similar to his disciples in chapter 13. Remember that Jesus was preaching. No, 12 even. I'm sorry, 12. Back all the way to 12. And he's interrupted by somebody who said, Hey, teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus, as a good evangelist, took that and said, Okay, I'll go in that direction. He tells him the story about the rich fool. He had lots of money. But he died. And he stood before God and his money did nothing for him. And he gives us the moral in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And then he goes through, telling them not to be anxious, not to fear, don't chase after these things. Pick it up in 32, okay? We'll close on this point. Prepare for communion. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He tells the rich ruler, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. It links these thoughts. So remember 21, so as one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And I think this also helps explain what's going on here as well. Remember last week we talked about how we must have childlike but not childish faith. Jesus' likening of infants to citizens of the kingdom is not saying you need a whimsical, lighthearted, innocent, undeveloped understanding of the gospel. You know, the gospel is easy enough for kids to believe. Now, these are babies. They weren't understanding anything. It's about dependence, trust, and the position of a child. How does Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 12, how does Jesus speak to them? And what motivation does he give for them to give their money up? Fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure. He speaks to my children. Don't be afraid. Dad's going to take care of you. You can share your toys. It's okay. And so he's simply demanding that the rich young ruler adopt the position of a child. It's the same motivation he gave to his disciples earlier when he said, I don't think it's a test. I think it's an absolute demand. Okay. I'm your good teacher, huh? Okay. It's time to share the toys. Because dad's going to take care of you. I think that's what he's saying. This, Jesus knows this is what's preventing him from coming to Christ. Make no mistake, your sin is the thing that keeps you from turning to Jesus. There's, there's, I was struck by this image um, about 20 years ago. I saw it on the Nature Channel. And even as an unbeliever, it's just striking to me. I think I posted it on Facebook this morning. You can see it, but... It shows how aborigines in Australia hunt monkeys without weapons or anything. All they do is they wait till a monkey's watching them because monkeys are naturally curious. They go over these big anthills that are hard like clay. They're like this tall. And he carves a small hole in the side of the anthill. And then he takes up, holds up in his hand some seeds, 
so the monkey can see, and he puts it in the hole, and then he walks away. And the monkey's afraid of the aborigine, so he has to get far enough away, but once he's far enough away, the monkey scampers on over, and he sticks his hand in the hole. Hey, that was a good scamper? Okay. <laughs> I don't scamper so much. Um, <laughs> and he puts his hand in the hole, and once his hand seizes around the seeds, guess what? His hand's too big to get out. And so if you watch this, it's just like it's a minute long. Initially, he's getting his hand. But then the aborigine, bold as brass, walks right out, walks right up to him, puts a lasso around his head, and yanks him away. And this monkey sees him coming, and he's terrified, and he's screeching, but he won't let go. This man knows judgment is coming, and he's scared, and he's unsettled. He's not confident in himself that he's righteous, but Jesus says, okay, follow me, let go of your money, follow me, and he won't let go. He won't let go. We need the law to convict us of sin. We need to see our need of grace. If you'll come broken, if you'll come empty-handed, you can have free salvation. The, the tax collector just cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. You want him justified. But if you've come into Jesus with your U-Haul of stuff behind you, watch out. Jesus said this plainly multiple times in Luke's gospel. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Pick up your cross. Come follow me. I mean, throughout Luke's gospel, again and again and again and again. Now, I'm going to close in a word of prayer as we transition to communion. We'll pick this up next week with the rich ruler's sorrow. But I think we've got plenty to think about now. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, convict us of our sinfulness. The best place to be is to be low and contrite. You exalt the humble. Humble us where we need it. Guard us from self-righteousness and pride. Guard us from dumbing down your holiness, your requirements, and overestimating our goodness. Help us to echo your words. That we, even when we obey, we've only done our duty. We're undeserving slaves. Lord, in doing so, you only call on us to follow the example of your son. For though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. He gave up his rights. He humbled himself. He became a servant. He suffered abuse from others. He poured himself out and his life out that we might be saved. He humbled himself, and therefore you have exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. Lord, we, we want to be those who confess that now and not at the judgment. So, Lord God, as we partake of this meal, as we give this sign of his death, it's the proof that none of us is worthy. None of us in our own could stand before you. We needed him to die for us so that we could be made clean. Lord God, help us to do it in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name, amen.